Welcome again to Trinity. We're glad that you're with us today here in person or with us online. A joy, a privilege to gather together, to, to sing, to, to read and, and read scripture and to pray and to hear the word preached. What a privilege it is. What a joy that we get to do this together. If you were with us last week, you enjoyed the picnic time with us afterwards. And, and that was such a beautiful day and a great time of fellowship with one another. If you happen to be newer uh, to Trinity, I would say in the last year or so, we are going to have a newcomer's luncheon in a few weeks on Sunday, October 16th. We'd love to spend that time with you and share a little bit about our church family and hear a little bit about you or uh, your questions that you might have of us. And so we'd love to connect in that way. You can either see me or any of the elders who come up and pray or register online and we'll be sure to be ready for you on Sunday, October 16th, and continue on uh, that sort of connection and, and fellowship together. All right, if you have a Bible, please open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to consider verses 3 through 6 today. Uh, chapter 1, 3 through 6. Last week we considered two verses. This week is four, so if you're doing your math, next week is, no, anyway, um, we will move through Ephesians, I promise. Uh, but there's just so much here, and we'll, let's enjoy it together. All right, let's, uh, let's get into God's Word together, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 3 through verse 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, we certainly ask that you would indeed be with us. As we consider this passage, as we consider these words, we need you to help our heads and our hearts soar in worship and understanding and joy. So would you do that? Be with the preaching, and the hearing, and the receiving, and the believing, and the trusting of this, your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Great things are greatly praised and greatly esteemed. This past week... Michael Jordan's game-worn jersey from Game 1 of the 1998 NBA Finals, affectionately called the Last Dance Jersey, was auctioned off for $10.1 million. I can't even begin to imagine all the care and precision that will go into prominently and, and, prote- and protectively displaying that jersey as the ultimate memorabilia mic drop of all time. Last year, my wife and I wandered around the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, stumbling into a room that prominently placed the portrait of George Washington that we have all seen hundreds of times on the dollar bill. I wasn't expecting to see that, nor ready to take it in. And I have no idea why it hit me so. Maybe it was just the history 
that it represented. I can still vividly remember the takeout dinner my wife and I had 14 years ago, sitting in the open back end of a rental hatchback on top of a mountain that sloped into the ocean on Kauai Island of Hawaii as we watched the sun melt into the Pacific. Great things are greatly praised and greatly esteemed. Ephesians 1 begins with a great God who is greatly to be praised and esteemed. Verse 3 says that, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then, in one long sentence of 202 words, ending in verse 14, it dives into all of the reasons why God is worthy to be greatly praised and greatly esteemed. Blessed be God, it says. Blessed be means to praise, to give good words about, to esteem or to make much of. Paul is immediately calling us to make much of God. And he goes into deep waters as to why. And we're going to take three weeks to consider those 202 Greek words and and the reasons why we are to greatly praise and esteem God. Today, we will consider how the Father purposed this glorious good news of the gospel. Next week, we'll see how the Son accomplished it. And in two weeks, we'll consider how the Spirit applies it. All of it to God's praise and glory. All of it so that we can declare His greatness and delight in His goodness. That's the context of what we will consider. That we would declare His greatness and delight in His goodness. As we go about doing that, we get to delight in God, we get to delight in the Father. And as we delight in the Father, our four verses are going to show us that we can delight in the Father's good pleasure. That we can delight in the Father's good pleasure. And then secondly, we can delight in the Father's gracious purpose. His good pleasure and His gracious purpose are to be delights for our heart. That's the context of our passage. Let's dig into that together. The Father's good pleasure. It's, first of all, good pleasure to us. The Father's good pleasure is good pleasure to us. These four verses have a very creative structure of how the Father's good pleasure is on display. Paul, the author of this letter, uses a mirror parallelism. He's saying parallel statements in a way that mirror back to one another to convey to us just how beautiful and incredible the Father's good pleasure to us is. So much so, I just wanted us to visually see it. And so we're going to look on the screen here as we look through those four verses as they mirror back to us what it is that God's good pleasure is all about and to us. So first we see that God blessed us For his glory in Christ. God blessed us for his glory in Christ. That starts our thought. That starts the the context of what we're going to consider. And then we see two things in the middle that mirror back to one another. The next one is that God chose us 
to be holy, blameless in him. God chose us to be holy in him. And then mirroring back to that is that God predestined us for adoption through Jesus. And so here the context is God has blessed us for his glory in Christ. And, it, and Paul emphasizes these two things in sort of a parallel mirroring way. God chose us. God predestined us. And then the, the, the mirror is complete in the last verse of our passage. God blessed us to his praise in the beloved. And so just seeing the visual component of these four verses and the flow of thought is that, that what we have here is this incredible reason that our hearts would be filled with delight when we think of God's good pleasure to us. So now I want us to do something else as we look at these verses. I want us to consider some very basic things like the who, the what, the why, and the how of this incredibly creative structure that magnifies the worthiness of God to be praised. So first is the who. Who's doing the work? Who's doing the action in these verses? That all has the same subject. It's God. God is doing all of the action. What is He doing? Well, in short, God is bringing His grace into our lives. The good pleasure of the Father to us is that He would bring grace into our lives. That we would be holy and blameless. That we would be adopted. That we would be in Christ. Why? Why is he bringing all of that to bear on us? Well, ultimately for his glory, but also to our good. So that we would be holy, blameless, adopted, and that God would receive all the glory for it. Why does God do this? Why is his good pleasure to us? So that he would be glorified and we would receive his good and his grace. Now how? How does he do it? Well, just as all four verbs have God as the subject, all four have God doing it through Jesus. All four have Christ as the means by which this comes to our lives. This is incredible. This is why God can be praised. Blessed be God. Why we can say good words about God. Why we can esteem Him in our lives and make much of Him with our lives. Is because he has blessed us for his glory in Christ. God does all that he pleases. And all that he pleases is good. Even when we don't understand all that God is doing. Or how that God is doing. Or why that God is doing. Or what that God is doing. When we come into contact with things that that raise those kinds of questions in us that we can't necessarily answer. We answer them with the character and nature of God. There are three verses in the Psalms that are helpful little guides to rehearse to our hearts when we come into contact with something that that really stretches our understanding or our experience in light of God. Psalm 135 verse 6 says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Whatever God pleases, he does. And it's, and it's anywhere. And that's the, that's the expression in heaven and on earth. It's, it's saying in totality everywhere. The things that are seen and unseen. As far as the heavens and as close as the earth and everywhere in between. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Next one, Psalm 145, verse 17. 
The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. So if He does whatever He pleases, what is it that He does? Well, He does righteous and kind. Whatever that might be, whatever He pleases, it's going to be righteous without fault, without error. And it's going to be kind. It's going to be soaked with grace, kindness. Third verse. Psalm 118, verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. When we take into account what the Lord pleases to do, in that it is righteous and kind, when we like factor that all in, and as we take it all in, it is so incredibly marvelous. It is marvelous. The Lord does what he pleases. What he does is kind. And all of it is marvelous. Even if we can't necessarily explain it. Or fully comprehend it. It is still yet marvelous. It's the Father's good pleasure to us. And that good pleasure to us is also the Father's good pleasure for us. What bookend those four verses is God blessing us. We're called to bless him. We're called to make much of him. We're called to esteem him. We're called to praise him. And here we find that God is blessing us. It's the bookend that sets the context for God choosing us. And it can best be understood as God delighting in us and for us. That's what's so remarkable here. It's that it is a picture of the character and nature of God to sinners such as us that He would delight in us. And delight for us. So that means everything that we read in between the blessed us work of God is demonstrating how God is delighting in us. God delights in us is the bookend, and how he goes about delighting in us is in the middle. So, keep that in mind. The Father's good pleasure for us is gracious and kind and affectionate and moves to us in purposeful action. This is staggering. This is why Paul just starts out like, God is amazing, everybody. Let's go. Let's take into account how amazing God is. He delights in us. And now that runs counter to misconceptions that our hearts want to believe. Runs counter to the misconceptions that our hearts want to believe about God. We have an impulse to assume God doesn't like us. We have an impulse to assume God is mad at us. Or that God can't stand us. We know ourselves. We know our situations, we know our stories, and we just assume that God would have other things to be busy with than us. Maybe we have lots of sin in our story that has lots of ugly, earthly consequences from our sin. And we have experienced all sorts of fallout because of that, our, our sin. The stuff we have said and done. The attitudes and motives that we have lived with. And we know that. So we 
We see that fallout in the lives and relationships that we have with others. And we take that experience and we project it upward toward God. And we think God is going to treat us in the same, just as the way everybody else has done, because we're miserable people doing terrible things. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 is calling us to a very different conception of God rather than a misconception one. Maybe we have experienced the opposite of someone delighting in us. Maybe our story is that we have so many people who have been the closest to us, whether in our home or whatnot, that have had nothing but disinterest in our lives. Or maybe... Maybe the, the bizarro version of the emotion of delight is in more like disdain. They either were disinterested in us or had disdain toward us. And so we have been deeply wounded, causing us to not want to trust anyone else. That they would actually delight in us or like us or care about us. Because those who have been the closest have wounded us with their disinterest or their disdain. And so we project that. We project that up toward God and we figure God will do the same so we can't trust Him. And Ephesians calls out to us something very different. And so God is worthy of the praise because He has delighted in us. His good pleasure to us is a good pleasure for us. Ephesians 1.3 stands out as a beacon calling us to the one who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Could you get any bigger in its scope and magnitude than that statement? Blessings that are anchored in eternity. That can't be touched by our current realities and experiences. Blessings that are tethered to the person of Christ. And blessings that ours are ours forever. Why? Because God does all that he pleases. Whatever he does is kind and it is too marvelous for our eyes. This is why Paul says, blessed be God. Make much of him. Look at his character and nature on display in the fact that he has delighted in us. So bookending our four verses is the God delighting in us and for us, Father. And that Father who has a good pleasure also has a gracious purpose. The Father has a gracious purpose The Father purposed to choose us. The Father's good pleasure is on display through the Father's gracious purpose. And in the middle of those four verses is that parallel thought. God chose us and God predestined us. And those two thoughts, those two words, those two ideas that are there in verses 3 and 4 have caused a lot of consternation over the years. There's been a lot of theological ink spilt trying to understand what is being said here and try to understand how God is over all things and yet how are we responsible for our things and what is that relationship? We've all, in a way, wrestled with that. 
But before we try to unpack this to some degree, we need to remind ourselves two things that I just spent time talking about. These truths are coming to us, not on accident here, but they're coming to us in a passage highlighting the reasons for our praising and glorifying God. So whatever it is that we want to say about what it means that God chose us and predestined us, whatever it is that we might want to wrestle with or or debate or discuss or dialogue around, whatever that might be and however wide or narrow that spectrum of thought might be, we must keep it anchored to how we're getting it delivered to us. It is a reason for us to glorify God. Don't lose sight of that. And two, related to that, these truths come to us as evidences of God's good pleasure for us. If he's got good pleasures, he's blessing us. These are the first two things that the Apostle Paul wanted to draw out and apply to our hearts, to lead our hearts into worship. They're evidences of God's good pleasure to us and for us. So similarly, as we considered earlier, his good pleasure and display in this passage, Let's consider the Father's gracious purpose, purpose, kind of answering similar questions. What, how, when, and why? Let's, get our, let's try to get a little bit of a handle around it. We can't get a full handle around it, and I'll just say it right now. We can't fully comprehend God choosing us and God predestining us. That's not a preacher cop-out, though I, I will happily take it at this moment. But that's not the cop-out. We can't, let me, let me explain. We can't fully understand the inner workings of a God who is infinite and eternal. We can understand truly, but we cannot understand fully. To understand fully would be you have to match what God is. He's infinite, without limit, eternal, without any sort of like end. No beginning, no end. We are not those things. So there is going to be a gap. But let's try to bridge some of that gap as what we find here in scripture. So first is the what. The what. What is it that we see on display here in God's gracious purpose? Well, we find two words, election or choosing and predestination. The word for choose is literally just it means to elect. Uh, one theologian put it this way. Very basic Understanding is election is the divine choice of God to grant eternal life to undeserving sinners based solely on his love and not on the goodness of those receiving his grace. It's a pretty standard definition of this word, the standard definition of understanding it. And just as God isn't looking down the corridors of time and seeing who's basically good or a little bit better than others and then saving them. No, he is basing this solely on his love. We'll get into that in a moment. But parallelism we find is at work here in our passage. And parallelism is a very important literary feature in the Bible. First line states something. The second line states it from a different angle and furthers its thought. It adds nuance and different color and dimension. And, it, and both lines together give us a, a fuller picture. So the second line says that God predestined us. Another way of saying he foreordained. And the word here for predestined is used four times in the New Testament. Everyone refers to God taking the sole initiative in his people's election or chosenness. 
God taking the sole initiative in doing this. We have it here in Ephesians 1.4. You find it in Acts 4.28, Romans 8.30, 1 Corinthians 2.7. And one thing about this is that these words mean these things very plainly. In fact, the whole structure of these verses is written very, very plainly. It is, in a way, intro to Greek grammar, even though it's discussing third-year student of theology stuff. And I say that because it's important. It's talking about something very deep in a very straightforward and plain way. While it may be confusing or stretch us to fully understand what's being said here, it isn't delivered to us as a riddle. It's just stated. It's important to keep that in mind. While we may struggle with understanding the inner workings of God, of how he goes about doing this, we can't dismiss it or explain it away, even though it is mysterious. It is plainly declared to us in Ephesians 1, 3 and 4 as reasons for our delighting in God and making much of him. So there we find the what. Well, how? How does he go about doing this? And this is where we see more of the character and nature of God. How does he do it? There are three things told of us in the how. First is in love. Secondly, according to his will. And then thirdly, in Christ. In love, as we noted already. This all comes to us in the context of God's good pleasure. For us and to us. He does all that he pleases. And it pleased him to do this. It pleased God to do this. God wasn't obligated to display his good pleasure in choosing his people. Nothing forced his hand. And he would be in the total right if no one was ever redeemed. Because sin deserves judgment from a holy and righteous God. And God's choosing wasn't based on our living. As if we were a little better than others. We aren't. No. It is based on his love. In love, he did this. Secondly, we see that it's according to his purpose, meaning his will, or he did it on purpose. He planned and purposed this action unrelated to anything outside of his will. It was a definite plan for a redeeming purpose. No, again, external forces at work, just God's will. In love and according to his will, he did this. And then thirdly, we see that it is in Christ. God's choosing, his electing work is rooted in Christ's work. As we noted earlier, all the actions of these verses are done by God and done in Christ. Again, a theologian said, the blessings we receive are reserved specifically for those who are united with Christ through faith. Those who trust in his death, resurrection, and ascension. That these words are alive in the hearts of those who have come to grips with the fact that a God has graciously and sovereignly brought about salvation for sinners. Through the sacrifice of his son. In his life, death, and resurrection. He lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved. And overcame enemies we could never beat. And he did all of this. And all of those who look to him and trust him 
will be saved, the Bible says. God purposed this. He purposed it in love that this would be the case. And so all those who hear that gospel and respond in that faith and look to Christ for salvation. God's delight was set on you. God delighted in you. And he brought this to bear in your life. When did all of this go into motion? Our third question. When did it all go into motion? Our verse says, before the foundation of the world. When is the when? Before there was a when. That's when. Before there was time. Before time began. We, we, have a, we, we struggle understanding that. We, we, we don't realize like God is and, and God was and, and God will be, but like in all eternity. So all of this is happening before there's a win. In a somewhat helpful passage from 2 Timothy 1.9, it says, before the ages began. Go one more. So speaking of God, he said, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. He didn't do it because we brought something to the table, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When did he give it to us? Before the ages began. There's a lot to take in. There's a fire hydrant kicked open. I get it. I understand that. And there are a lot of things that I can't explain away. I'm just simply stating what Scripture is telling us. And these things are telling us, that Scripture is telling us is to lead us and to usher us into worship. The when, before time, before the ages began, reinforces the how. It's based on God's love and His will. And it's brought forth in Christ. It's unrelated to anything we have done. Like that old hymn of Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Naked to the cross I cling. Because this has been God's good pleasure and his gracious purpose. So what, the how, the when, and it leads us to the why. We're given three reasons. One, to be holy and blameless. Not only are we rescued out of our sin, but we are rescued to walk in newness of life. So we begin to live out our redeemed by grace lives, reflecting more and more of Jesus. When we think of God's redeeming grace in our lives, it's not just simply from something, but it's also to something. It's to Him. It's to Christ. And more of that would be reflected in more of our lives. Secondly, we see that we are given of these three reasons that we're given is to be adopted. And we are no longer orphaned, but brought into the family of God. This comes with it both legal and relational dynamics, legally declared a part of God's household, no longer orphaned in this world, but also relationally and affectionately brought into God's family room. You could say we go from the courtroom to the family room because of God's good pleasure. And this is what he has done. At the, at the cross, Christ takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. 
We go from far and without hope to near and with God. And then third reason is that both the holy and blameless, this new life that we have been rescued to, this new life in which we belong to God, adopted into his family, all of it, all of it, all of it is to the praise of his glorious grace. The bookend of this passage is mirroring back where it started. That God would receive the glory and praise for his redeeming grace. Now I know these two ideas there in the middle. This idea of God choosing and predestining. Are, are again things that we wrestle with. But I just want to say something about how we go about wrestling with it. We need to realize um, we're not on the committee. A little quick word on committee. Churches love committees. Some churches have committees just to set up all the other committees. And we're not on the committee to know who responds to the gospel in that saving faith, resting and trusting in Christ. We're not on that committee. We don't know who's on that committee. I mean, we don't know who's going to be saved. We know who's on the committee. There's only one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the committee. That's it. That's the one who knows. I don't know. You don't know. No one knows. Therefore, such a marvelous truth and such an incredible reason to praise God should not lead us into inactivity. Should not lead us to be self-absorbed and grossly negligent with the gospel, but should make us to be just as generous and filled with delight as God is. We preach, we pray, we sing, we speak, we cry, we plead, we share, we live. Like this could be the day that God brings good news to bear on someone's life and they respond to his gospel with faith. At no point does this tell us that we don't have anything to do. We should be overflowing with great joy and wonder that we get to proclaim such an incredible God. We don't know the who's of God's choosing, but knowing God's good pleasure and his gracious purpose, we should all be hopeful, expectant, eager to let others know this is God. This is his character. This is the good news of his grace. We have no reason to doubt because God is gracious and merciful and good. Secondly, we can also think, not only do we not know that committee, but, but when we think about ourselves, sometimes we wrestle with feeling as if we are accepted. We wrestle with the struggle of sin that lingers around and lurks around and rattles around in our own hearts. And we sometimes feel as if maybe, maybe God is too far for me. When we come back and we rehearse to ourselves the truth of who God is, the reasons for our delighting in him and making much of him and praising him, this begins slowly, mind you, slowly, but it begins to bring a settling peace and confidence, knowing that this rides on the character of God. And then you rehearse yourself again. The Lord does all that he pleases in heaven and earth. 
does it all. And all that he does is righteous and kind. And this is too marvelous. Great things are greatly praised and greatly esteemed. God is great and greatly to be praised. And as we have seen from our passage, it was the Father's good pleasure to bring about his gracious purpose of redemption to sinners such as us. This is marvelous to our eyes, to our ears, to our hearts, to our lives. So let us then be people who make much of such a gracious God. All to his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And while it does sometimes kick us into some deep waters that are hard for us to comprehend, uh, we certainly are reminded of the nature and character of your love and your grace for us. How you purposed to fulfill your good pleasure in our lives. And so, God, I pray that that would just lead our hearts to swell with worship. That we would be eager to make much of you. And and not just in song, but in the manner of our living. That we would be eager to make much of you to the people in our lives. That we would be hopeful and expectant. Because, God, you are overwhelmingly gracious and kind in all your ways. And that would fuel us all the more to be happy and hopeful people, delighting in your goodness and declaring your greatness through the gospel. Help us to do that, we pray, to your glory, to our good. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. And as we finish our time this morning, making much of our God,